Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I read a study once where psychologists took a group of students who tested on the same level and split them into two classes. One class was told they were advanced and were challenged and praised for their intelligence. The other class were told they were remedial and given easier tasks and criticized for their failings. At the end of the study, they retested the students and found the advanced group scored higher than they had coming in while the remedial group scored lower. Ethical issues aside, the study proved that perception affected reality. Students fit into the negative and positive molds they were subjected to. I learned about this study in college when I took an early childhood education elective hoping it would help me become a good foster parent. That study turned out to be more relevant than I could ever have imagined when I welcomed my first child into my home. Her name was Alexis, and she had a sister, Oakley. In a sort of bastardized parallel to the study, Oakley was raised being told she was descended from angles and doted on, while Alexis was told she was the daughter of demons and left to rot. I won't go into any details beyond telling you that Alexis was locked in a basement until the day her sister slipped up at school and revealed her existence to a teacher. The teacher contacted the authorities, Alexis was rescued, the parents were arrested, and... The children were put into foster care. The sisters were like day and night. Oakley was a plump, little blonde-haired girl with a big, bright smile and a happy spirit. And Alexis was a gaunt, barely communicative recluse who scowled and snarled at everyone. When the social worker told me Alexis' story, I offered to take her in. I was determined to give her all the love and attention she deserved. What can I say? I was full of blind optimism and desperately wanted to help a little girl who'd gone through hell. I signed the papers and was told to wait in the hall while they brought her out. As soon as I left the office, I found her sitting on the bench, legs swinging. She looked downright feral, with her head of matted brown hair, yellow teeth, and tattered clothes. Alexis? I asked softly. We locked eyes, and she stared at me with the desperate stare of a shelter cat. I held out my hand, she took it, and I brought her home. I quickly became disenchanted with my foster care fantasy. I'd imagined mentoring, emotional breakthroughs, and deep conversations about life. All things I'd wanted when I was on the receiving end of the system. I wanted to offer better than what I'd been given, but the truth is it's not as easy as it looks. Alexis was difficult in ways that I'd expected, like refusing to eat anything red one day and not eating her favorite food another because the carrots touched it. But she was also difficult in ways I wasn't equipped to handle. I'd wake up some mornings to find demonic symbols carved into the walls. She'd sometimes babble in some made-up language, no, not Latin, 
She'd hoard candles and lighters under her bed. Things like that. I knew it was all her conditioning. She'd been called a demon all of her life, so now she acted like one. But it was... unsettling. No amount of love or devotion seemed to improve her behavior. Things escalated as the weeks wore on. I woke up in the middle of the night, the sound of furniture being dragged across the floor. It was slow at first, as though an attempt was being made to keep quiet. But as I got up to investigate, the scraping became louder, rushed, and more frantic. I walked down the hallway with a flashlight in hand and followed the ruckus to its source. Alexis' room. There, I put my ear to the door and listened carefully. Maybe it was just my tired, sleepy brain imagining things or the echo, but I could have sworn it sounded like there were multiple objects being pushed at once. I opened the door to ask Alexis what she was doing, and the scraping immediately stopped. To my surprise, I found her sitting in bed, eyes wide and staring at me like an owl. More surprising was the fact that every single piece of furniture in the room had been moved. Not just a few inches here and there, both her dressers were now on the opposite wall, her bed had been rotated and pushed against the window, her vanity had been knocked over and dragged halfway across the room, and her big metal toy chest now rested against the door. You have to understand... I was dealing with a frail, sickly little girl. The strength it would take to move all that furniture? I had trouble getting it in there without help. For a child to do it all, let alone this skinny, malnourished child, it would have taken Herculean strength or something. I wondered if this was part of her conditioning somehow. Maybe it took root so deep that she was able to perform inhuman feats, like a mother lifting a car to save her dying child. I didn't want to scold her because it was her room, and I interpreted rearranging furniture as a sign that she was making herself at home. I didn't want to stifle her ability to take control of her environment, you know. This was important to her. I gently told her I'd help her move in the morning if she wanted to move anything else, and then went back to bed. I was a little less understanding when some of my kitchen knives went missing. I tried every technique in the book to get them back. I asked nicely. I said they could be returned anonymously. I promised there would be no repercussions. I bribed. I lied about their emotional value. I explained the danger, but... Nothing worked. I even ransacked her room and couldn't find them. To this day, I still have no idea where she hid them. Another night, I woke up to her standing over me, her dark eyes reflecting the faintest glimmer of the streetlight outside, making her look even more owl-like. What's wrong, Alexis? I asked as I twisted around to turn on the bedside lamp. Did she have a bad dream? I was ready to pull her into bed and comfort her, but when I turned back around, she was gone. No footsteps, no squeal of a door opening and closing. She was just gone. I got out of bed and checked up on her, but she was fast asleep. One morning, I woke up to a cold bedroom. There was something muggy in the air, making it hard to breathe, and my sheets were uncomfortably damp. I opened my eyes to the dark room and swung my legs over the edge of the bed. As my feet touched the ground, I felt wetness. 
I remember thinking, blood? I imagined a pull of it beneath my feet, trickling out from a dead, mutilated animal stuffed under my bed. Thankfully, there was no such thing. I think that's when I realized Alexis's conditioning was so intense that it was transferring onto me, making me think the most ridiculous thoughts. I flicked the lights on, and though there was no blood in my room, there was something just as strange. My entire room was covered in dew. Yes, like on the grass in the morning. It was everywhere. The walls, the ceiling, the curtains. It peppered my dresser and overtook my mirror. I have no idea how it happened. My windows are closed and my heating was on, so I have no idea how all that humidity accumulated in my room. I spent the day cleaning up and running fans to prevent mold. After that, I had nightmares almost every night. I had a dream of waking up and seeing Alexis's owl-like eyes watching down at me from the ceiling, from the walls, from under the bed, and from the very back of my closet. I knew it was wrong to let her tragic past influence me, but I felt some relief in knowing that that's all it was. We were both normal students, told we were in a remedial classroom. I just had to keep telling myself that there was nothing wrong. Even when the dreams became so vivid, they bled into my waking life. I'd wake up in the middle of the night to use the restroom and feel her presence behind me or her breath in my ear or catch a glimpse of her running down the hall when I knew damn well she was fast asleep. God damn it, we were normal. I wasn't going to let myself be poured into her negative mold. I was here to reshape her, not the other way around. One of the creepiest things to me was what you see in every horror movie involving kids. Her drawings. It was never anything quite as unsettling as, say, demonic faces scrawled across all the pages of a notebook or an axe murder scene or anything like that, but every time she drew herself into a picture, she drew a kind of dark halo around her body. It wasn't threatening or anything, but it spoke volumes about how she perceived herself, you know? I think that was the true horror to me, knowing that even months later her parents still had such a huge negative impact on how she viewed herself. After months of unconditional love, she still saw herself as a monster. She still snarled at strangers. She still lashed out at me if I tried talking to her. She still moved all manner of furniture at night. She still mumbled that incomprehensible tongue. Last night, as I sat in bed thinking about what to try next to help her, I had an idea. This little girl had lost everything. She'd been uprooted from her life, lost her home, as bad as that home was. Her parents, her sister, and that got me thinking. Maybe I could arrange a play date with her sister. Maybe seeing a familiar face would make her feel better. Which brings us to today. I contacted the agency this morning. I introduced myself and asked about Alexis's sister, Oakley. I intended to start with a small talk and ease into my request. I asked how Oakley was, but I got a cold reception from the woman on the phone. She asked me why I wanted to know, and I was really off-put by the brash tone in her voice. 
I explained I'd been fostering her sister and was wondering if they could meet up. I explained I thought it would be good for Alexis to be around her sister for a bit, provided the other foster family was okay with the reunion. There was a long silence on the line before I heard the drawers opening and closing, followed by the shuffling of papers. Sorry, who did you say you were again? She asked. I let out a nervous laugh. There was something off in the tone of her voice, something that wove my vocal cords and esophagus into a tight braid. I shakily gave her my name again. Papers shuffled. She asked me to repeat it, and I did. We... She seemed hesitant, as though unsure whether she could tell me, but she did. You left before we gave you Alexis. We thought you changed your mind. She's with a different family. What she said next was a blur, as my mind raced to understand. Had I taken the wrong child? But then, what about all the weird happenings around my house? In a haze, I asked who I was fostering and was told I didn't have a foster child. I protested, but she checked and all the foster kids were accounted for. I don't know who or what is sleeping in Alexis's bedroom right now. The psychologist's study never mentioned there was a third room. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I was the first one that noticed something else was living with us. It was small things at first. I'd leave something in one spot and come back later to find it moved. There would be a bag of chips that was halfway full, and two hours later, they'd be down a quarter more. My first assumption was that either I was being forgetful, or it was just my roommate, Sarah. I didn't know why she'd move my stuff around or eat stuff that she normally hated, but I also didn't think I was getting that absent-minded. It wasn't a big deal, really. Just little weird stuff that was mildly annoying, but not enough for me to mention. But... Then Sarah's dad got sick, and she was back home for two weeks. Aside from having friends over once, no one should have been in that apartment but me, and things kept happening more and more. When Sarah got back, after she told me about how her family was doing with everything that they had going on, I broached the topic of all the weird stuff I'd been noticing. I half expected her to laugh me off, but she didn't. Said she hadn't realized it was going on as long as I had, but she'd started seeing stuff moved or missing in the few days before she went out of town. She did a little laugh when she wondered out loud if our little house was haunted, but it sounded hollow, and when I suggested we get a camera to set up and see what was going on, she quickly agreed. Over the next three weeks, a couple of things became clear. First, something was messing with the camera that we'd bought. 
it would work fine. And then when a time came that something was going to be messed with inside its cone of vision, the feed would not record for five or ten minutes. Then it would be back like nothing was wrong. The second thing was... Well, it was getting worse. Initially, it had just been the stuff being moved and food being eaten. Then I started feeling like I was being watched. Not in some generalized, paranoid way like someone is watching you. No, this is very specific. Very personal. As though someone I couldn't see was standing just a few feet away, silently staring at me. It would happen mostly in the living room at first. But over the next few days, I started feeling it in the kitchen, my bedroom, the bathroom. At first, I'd look around for someone, or a hidden camera, or something that explained what I was feeling. We'd already changed the locks and alarm code, but it hadn't helped any more than the camera. When I realized I wasn't going to find anything, I tried to tell myself it was in my head. Sure, maybe something was a little weird, but I was blowing it way out of proportion, imagining invisible eyes that weren't there. During this period of me trying to convince myself it wasn't real, Sarah was doing the opposite. She wanted the house to be haunted. Initially, she just joked about it, but the more worried I became, the more she seemed to embrace the idea that maybe there was some ghost lurking around, maybe even watching over us like a guardian angel. It got so I didn't talk to her much about it at all, as it was frustrating to share how nervous I was getting, only to see that spark of excitement flare brighter in her eyes with every creepy moment or strange discovery I recounted. Things changed for the both of us one night in June. We were supposed to grill out on our patio. We hadn't really hung out together in nearly two months, and I think we both sensed that we needed to mend our friendship, regardless of what was going on with our house. I was outside lighting the charcoal when I heard a startled yelp from indoors. Walking inside, I saw Sarah standing in the middle of the living room. She wasn't looking at me. At first, I didn't think she was looking in any particular direction. It just seemed like she was staring straight ahead, her expression terrified. And then she noticed me, her eyes going wider as she shook her head. Don't. Don't come in here. I frowned at her. Why? Her face had gone pale. I... I was walking, going to bring out the spatula and tongs. She gestured to where she dropped them on the floor, and... And... And I hit something. Her eyes went back to what looked like empty space in front of her and then found mine again. There was nothing there. Nothing I could see. I... I I backed off a few steps, but I was afraid of what might happen if I run or something. I don't know if it's still there. Heart pounding, I nodded. Well, uh... Okay. Just... Walk sideways, as far as you can, and then walk toward me. If it didn't move, maybe you can get past it. I looked over and grabbed my car keys and phone from the nearby table. Just keep coming, that's it. Okay, let's go. We ran out of the house and out to my car, and once we were inside and going, I didn't stop until we were at a motel across town. 
We checked in and then sat scared in our room, talking about what it might have been and what we should do next. Sarah said it seemed wide and heavy, but it gave like a person would give if you bumped into them. Said it seemed shorter than her, too, and she only felt it as high as her stomach. Though, she immediately stepped back once she realized she couldn't see anything there. I wanted to make a joke of it, or explain it away, but instead, I told her I believed her, and that we needed to start thinking about if we were willing to stay in that house anymore. I'd already half decided that I was never going back there beyond packing my stuff, and I thought Sarah was of the same mind. Maybe in the moment she was, but by the next morning she was talking about how we couldn't just up and leave in the middle of our lease, especially without somewhere else to go. I argued with her, told her that that was stupid, that we could figure out something until we found a new place, that we couldn't stay in a place with something that we couldn't see or understand, but that could decide to hurt us at any time. Seemed to almost make Sarah angry. She reminded me that whatever it was, it hadn't done anything to hurt us other than eat a little food and move things around a bit. And it was a little. Maybe it was the ghost of some lonely child or something. I pointed out that I didn't think ghost children ate chips or could be bumped into, but she just stared at me for a moment before shrugging. She said we could leave, but we needed to find a suitable replacement house first. In the meantime, we would just be careful. I could have argued harder. Demanded that we not sleep there another night, much less the weeks or months it might take to find a new place together. And if she still refused to listen to reason, I could have just left on my own. Part of the reason I didn't was because I knew I'd have a hard time finding a decent place to live without her help. As it was, she was paying most of the rent and half of the utilities, and I didn't see my money situation improving anytime soon. But the bigger part of why I wouldn't leave her was because she was my friend. I didn't want to leave her alone in that house with whatever it was. So I went along with it. I figured I'd just spend all my spare time looking for us a place and we could get out within a week. At the end of that first week, my hope of finding us a place was quickly fading. This house was perfect for a lot of reasons, including being in a good neighborhood roughly the same distance from both our jobs. Finding something like that in our price range wasn't going to be that easy, and it was becoming clear by the day that Sarah wasn't that keen on moving. It frustrated me, but I tried to tell myself that maybe I was overreacting. Nothing else had happened since we'd come back that past Friday, at least as far as I knew. We were sitting, watching TV one night when I decided to ask Sarah about it. Still watching TV, she shook her head. No, nothing bad. I stared at her. So, something has happened. She looked at me briefly before looking away again. Uh, yeah, but again, it's it's nothing bad. It's kind of sweet, actually, Sarah sighed. But I knew you'd freak out again, so I just haven't mentioned it. Reaching across the sofa, I grabbed her arm. What's happened? This time, she turned to meet my eyes, her expression already growing defiant. 
It keeps holding my hand like a little kid would do. When I just stared at her in shock, she went on. It's only happened a few times, and the first time it scared me. At least I thought I did. You were at work, and I almost left and called you, but then I realized I was overreacting. I was just startled, not scared. I stood up, shaking. Startled? Bullshit. This, this thing, it's fucking grabbing your hand, and you think you shouldn't be scared? I shook my head. It's in your head or something, it has to be. You're not dumb, and this is really, really stupid. Sarah was frowning up at me like a petulant child. You're making too big of a deal out of this. This has been going on for days and nothing bad has come of it. Something struck me then. When's the last time you went to work? I don't know, a few days? I decided to take a few days off, big deal. Okay, when's the last time you left the house? I've been assuming you were just beating me home, but I can't think of the last time I saw you outside this place. She shrugged, her voice softer and trembling as she lowered her gaze. I don't know, okay? A few days? I knelt down in front of her, grabbing her hands. I kept my voice at a whisper, though I didn't know if it would matter. Sarah, something is really wrong here, okay? We need to get out of the air. was knocked out of me as I was shoved across the room and hit the TV stand. I was dazed for a moment, and when I got it together enough to think of Sarah, I looked up just as she was going into her bedroom and closing the door. Tongue thick in my mouth, I staggered to my feet and tried her bedroom door's knob before beating on it and yelling for her to open up. I thought she wasn't going to answer at all, but then I heard her voice, soft and shuddering with fear, just on the other side of the door. Just go. Please. It's okay. I felt a stir of relief at hearing her voice, but also at her telling me to go. I wanted to go. Wanted to go more than I'd ever wanted anything, maybe, but I also didn't want to abandon my best friend. Hitting the door again, I yelled for her to come out to come with me. I can't. They won't let me. What? What do you mean, they? Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. There's more than one of them. You need to go before they decide they want you to. I rested my forehead against the door for a moment, blood drumming in my ears as my heart grew cold. I think I whispered that I was sorry. Maybe I even lied and said I'd bring her help. All I know for sure is that I ran out into the night and I never went back. That was two years ago. I haven't heard from Sarah since that night and I've made it a point not to look for her. Partially out of guilt, partially out of fear, but mainly because I didn't want to be infected with whatever got my friend. I want to forget all of that, even forget her if it means I can go on to have a normal life. And for a time it seemed to be working. I moved to another state and essentially started over, which made it simpler for me to forget, easier for me to lie to myself that whatever had seen Sarah had claimed her and had forgotten about me. Even though in their own way they revealed themselves to me first. 
I woke up last night, skin cold and sweaty in the dark. I wasn't strange. I have terrible dreams often, and I don't sleep well on the best of nights, but still, this was different somehow. The darkness of the room felt heavier. As I climbed out of sleep, I realized the hand I had draped off the bed didn't move when I tried to shift over onto my back. Something was holding my hand. Its spongy fingers woven firmly within mine. Letting out a scream, I started yanking at my hand desperately, realizing too late that there was shifting weight behind me on the bed. An invisible weight draped over me, a massive, unseen arm, maybe, though it felt cold and soft and strange through the thin cotton sheet that lay between it and my skin. The weight curled around my front, cradling my chest and sliding me backward a few inches as my back pressed against the larger bulk of the thing. A cold, spicy smell filled my nostrils and I began to gag in between my feeble attempts to scream. The things gave no response to my cries for help, keeping me, holding me, touching me in the dark hours before finally letting me go without a sound and only one sign. It was a sign that didn't say goodbye but instead, see you soon. Not a warning, but a promise, a promise that they would always find me. When the sun started to rise, the larger one behind me pushed back the hair at my neck and pressed an unseen, burning kiss there. I shuddered and tried to scream again, my voice nothing but a raw, squawking whisper by then. It didn't seem to matter to them, a heavy weight shifted off the bed as unseen things uncoiled from between my fingers. For a few minutes I was terrified, violated, paralyzed by fear, but desperate to get up and move. Run away, fight if I had to, just so long as I could be away from them forever. But as the sun rose, I felt myself sinking. I was so exhausted, and I'd think more clearly after some rest. And after all, they hadn't really hurt me, had they? I gave a final, violent shudder as I cried into my pillow, and then I was fast asleep. The following manuscript, along with two videotapes of security camera footage, was found in the fourth floor of an empty office building next to what remains of a mangled, once-locked metal door. The building, located deep in the forest of North Dakota, was repossessed by the city, repaired, and sold to a software company. The tapes and files were thrown away and later stolen from the trash. The current location remains unknown. What follows is a letter written by Dr. Richard Banks who's been missing for over two years. This... This is an apology. I've gotten two people killed already, and I'm certain that more will follow. I'm sorry for that. I really am. <laughs> Ten goddamn years of paranormal research tossed in the garbage. Our big revolutionary project up in flames. But I'm getting off topic. I should start from the beginning. We were fresh 
out of grad school. Newly unemployed, quickly realizing that a PhD doesn't even get you a job teaching science to first graders. That's when my friend James Weldon approached me with an idea. All four of us had been obsessed with the paranormal, but James was really into it. He showed us this study out of Russia where these scientists were able to conjure what they referred to as Tinchaklovek, the Shadow Man. Though we were naturally skeptical at first, all of us were intrigued by the research. The files went into explicit detail about how to conjure, contain, and study the Shadow Man that, for the sake of public safety, I will not repeat here. By some miracle, we acquired what used to be an office building that was far enough away from the nearest town. We set up what passed for a lab, and three weeks later, we began the ritual. Just about shit ourselves when the inky form appeared in the observation room. We actually did it. The scientist in me was astounded, but the rest of me was deeply unnerved. The shadow man was downright creepy. The figure before me was a humanoid shape that didn't look like it was entirely there, almost... Like it was made out of smoke, like you could put your hand right through it. It had no discernible features. We performed countless tests and experiments on this entity, but much to our disappointment and curiosity, the Shadow Man did not respond to stimuli. Heat, cold, light, dark, we tried it all. It did not react. It's not to say that there were no changes. We noticed that as the days progressed, the Shadow Man grew more corporeal. Its form seemed to solidify and take a more permanent shape. As the Shadow Man evolved, it frightened me even more. It looked more human each day. James thought that the Shadow Man was copying us. While it did appear to be very human-like, it couldn't get it just right. The Shadow Man's limbs were jagged, like they'd been badly broken in several places and had not set properly. Jane Adams, behavioral psychologist and member of our team, had already begun writing a paper on the Shadow Man. We told her that absolutely no one would believe a word of it, that it might even ruin her career, but she didn't care. I guess we were all too blinded by how strange this situation was to think rationally. A couple of days later, I was in the observation room by myself. I stayed late that night, promising to close up when I left. I think the shadow man knew that I was alone. It approached the glass wall separating us and pressed its bony, mangled fingers against it. The lights went out. The power was still on, the computers were still running, but the lights turned off and would not come back on no matter what I tried. Though it sounded ridiculous, I thought that the Shadow Man was smart. No, it was impossible to see the creature in the darkness, and I think that's what I wanted. When I was turned around, messing with the fuse box, the Shadow Man began to throw itself against the glass wall, violently. These bangs rang out into the dark room, reverberating off all the walls and through the air. I ran out of the building and didn't come back until noon the next day, when I was sure the sun would be at its brightest. Aside from that night, the Shadow Man experiment was going pretty well until James called us into the lab at three in the morning. He took me aside, 
leaving the others in the observation room. James was freaking out as he threw a stack of papers on the table before us. We fucked up. I picked up a few pages and thumbed through them, but I soon realized that, as they were all in Russian, I didn't understand a word of it. I asked him what was wrong and what all these papers were. He told me that they were new publications from the scientists in Russia, the ones studying the Shadow Man. They're all dead now. The whole town just fucking vanished. He went on about how after two weeks of their experiment, just a few days longer than our own experiment has lasted, they started noticing changes in the Shadow Man. It was becoming malevolent. And then, it disappeared. James explained that the papers in my hand were the last publications the scientists released about the Shadow Man, saying that on several occasions the creature tried to harm the scientists. The physical attacks started small, with the Shadow Man clawing and scratching the research team, but quickly escalated into life-threatening incidents, even putting one of the scientists in the hospital. As if this wasn't scary enough, James continued, telling me that the Shadow Man got out of the Russian lab, which was currently much better equipped than ours was. He rifled through the scattered pieces of paper on the table before pulling out an article from a Russian newspaper about six scientists found dead in an empty laboratory. They were ripped apart. An animal attack, police officers believed. Now look at this. James handed me another article. Everyone in the town surrounding the lab died the same way. I stared at the papers in front of me, not wanting to believe what James was telling me. What have we done? Maybe we should have waited for the results of the Russian experiment before trying to replicate it. I knew we had to leave. I planned on staying with family living two states away, but James said that we had to kill the Shadow Man. Reluctantly, I agreed, knowing that I wouldn't feel right about letting everyone in the city die, but I made James promise that if we couldn't kill this thing in two days, we would leave. He agreed. And with some persuasion, the others did as well. Nothing could kill the Shadow Man. Not guns, knives, poison. We even tried spraying it with raid. We just made it angrier. All of us decided to leave the lab next morning. We gathered all of our data on the Shadow Man and left it on the table, knowing that whenever the building was sold, someone would find it and maybe even believe it. Before we were able to leave, the door to the observation room flew off its hinges, smacking against the wall and toppling onto the floor. We sprinted toward the exit, but only James and I made it out. The two of us stood outside, listening to the screaming from in the building. Abruptly, it ended. James and I took off, not wanting to wait for the Shadow Man to come for us. We came back two days later we found what was left of Jane smeared on the floor and walls. Lisa Altman, the fourth member of our team, tried to escape the observation room via fifth-story window. After seeing what happened to Jane, I can tell you that Lisa was better off. This is my apology to you, 
The Shadow Man experiment was a mistake, and I fully admit that what we did was wrong, even if it's not going to change anything. I've been scouring the internet for days, and there has been no mention of the Shadow Man anywhere. Hopefully that means the Russians and us are the only ones who have been dumb enough to conjure it. James stopped returning my calls yesterday. The Shadow Man caught up with him. I know that I'm as good as dead. I leave you with this. Ever since the beginning, the Shadow Man gave me a weird vibe. I was always frightened of it. Please, follow your instincts and think twice before you get involved with things like this. If you do, just for a moment, consider the consequences. Regretfully, Richard Banks. The first tape is from a mounted camera on the wall of what is assumed to be the observation room Dr. Banks describes in his letter. Four people look into a room behind a wall of glass. The footage is low quality, but five candles, three of which are unlit, surrounding scattered pieces of scrap metal are visible in the room. In the middle of the room, behind the glass wall, the figure appears. It is dark and inky, and matches almost perfectly Dr. Banks' descriptions. The scientists are clearly excited as they begin to observe the entity, which remains completely still inside the observation room. All of them frantically scratch down notes and snap photos. The second tape, released from police custody after an investigation into the disappearance of the scientist, contains footage of what is believed to be the night the Shadow Man escaped. It appears to have been filmed by the same camera as the first tape. All four members of the research team are in the lab, cautiously watching the Shadow Man from behind the glass. The Shadow Man seems to disappear for a moment. And then launches itself at the thick metal door, ripping it off its hinges. The door lands on the laboratory floor, five feet from the wall of the observation room. Richard Banks and James Weldon run out of the room. Lisa Altman forces open window and quickly jumps out. Jane Adams stands in the middle of the room, frozen. The shadow Man pauses for a moment before darting across the room and throwing itself onto Jane. When it moves, its limbs swing out almost comically, but in such a way that they should not have allowed the entity to move at all, much less as rapidly as it did. The Shadow Man rips apart Jane Adams, flinging pieces of her flesh across the room, tearing her down to the bone. The Shadow Man then exits the observation room through the open door, eyes never leaving the camera as it leaves. Local police departments in the surrounding area have reported a spike in reports of animal attacks and sightings of a disturbing figure stalking the town. Neither Dr. Richard Banks nor any of his potentially living associates have ever been located. <laughs>